Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla, in for David Martin Davies. In recent decades, retirement in the United States has become a luxury and not a guarantee. Most private sector employees are not guaranteed fixed pensions, and a lot of Americans are finding the system is not sustainable. Here to talk more about this is Teresa Gilarducci. She's a labor economist and professor of economics at the New School for Social Research. Her new book is Work, Retire, Repeat, The Uncertainty of Retirement in the New Economy. And Teresa, welcome to The Source. I'm so happy to have you here today. Oh, Kayla, thanks a lot for inviting me. The number to call if you have a question or comment is 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. Are you prepared for retirement? Is that an option for you, or do you plan to work until you can't anymore? We want to hear from you. So, Teresa, can I just say that I thought the way you started your book was just perfect because we've all heard stories like this. You tell the story of an 82-year-old veteran who worked at Walmart to make ends meet, and one day a young man saw him and felt bad that this elderly man still had to work at his age. And so the young man makes a TikTok video explaining the situation. He starts a GoFundMe, raises over $100,000, and the old man can finally retire. So as happy as I am for that man's overdue retirement, should I just hope that when I'm older, a nice young person will make me TikTok viral and help me raise $100,000? Is that sustainable? Yeah. um, I mean, no, it's not. Um, What if you're not a very likable old lady? (laughs) What if if your feet hurt and you're standing there and... um, and you know you can't walk, your diabetes is a little bit worse, and you just don't charm, you know, any young people. It doesn't seem very fair that likable old people, you know, who get lucky can get a pension and everybody else can't. Um, you know, and I thank you for for um, lifting up the beginning of my book because I was enraged, you know, when I found that people – reported this as a feel-good study uh, story, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, this is, this, that story um, really encapsulates my 30 years of research, that this is a very American story, and you don't have, like, dignified Danish people going around <laughs> hoping for TikTok videos, you know, to fund their retirement. Um, so, yeah, don't don't count on it. <laughs> So, well, like you just said, sometimes these stories get shared by the media as inspiring, but I think there's always this dread attached to it. You know, I've seen other headlines along the lines of, like, child sells Xbox to pay for dad's medical bills. You know, reading that, I don't feel very uplifted. Are these types of situations becoming more common in this economy? Yeah, there um, there was another story of a, a group of, um, school children, I think they were in fourth grade, that collected money for their janitor um, to be able to retire. And I'm not surprised um, that there's two stories, and, and actually I've, I've heard of several others that didn't get national attention, and that's because um, there are more older people 
that are working. And so we younger people are going to encounter them. So just the sheer numbers of, of, um, of older people are working, not only because they're just a lot more older people because of the boomer, the demographic changes, but because older people are working more than they ever had um, before. The other stories you hear about um, that are supposed to be feel-good stories, and they don't make you feel bad, but they distort the reality, and that's the 100-year-old yoga teacher. Um, there are extraordinary um, people who, in their 80s and 90s, are continuing to work doing extraordinary things. The 80-year-old pediatrician, um, there, there was a, an 75-year-old astrophysicist, um, but these are, according to my data, really one-off stories. These are stories of people who can choose the pace and content of their work, who like their work, um, and often can retire if they want to, but they have enough, because um, they have enough money to retire, but they have enough um, um, desire by their employer to keep on working. Well, it turns out that's only about 10% of people over over 60, and that's that lucky group who whose employers want them and who could afford to retire if they want to. Um, most of the people that you see working um, who are over 65 or in their 70s or 80s are doing it because they have to. And in your promo, you talked about why they might have to keep on working, but most older workers are kind of desperate. Mm -hmm. Well, your book very simply asks the question, is a longer work life fair to those who have a shorter life expectancy. Could you talk more about the disparities uh, in yeah. life expectancy among Americans and how is work life tied to that life expectancy? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to have, you know, people visualize looking at an older worker and, and I already told you, the chances are that person doesn't have enough money to retire and they're, and they're working because they have to. They don't have enough pensions. Um, the other hidden thing about those older workers is that for most older workers, the jobs are making them um, uh, um, less healthy. So you don't – they may be healthier than people who aren't working, but the actual working will make them um, less healthy. Overall, that helps explain what you just asked me, um, that longevity um, has not accrued to every group equally. So when you hear someone say, well, everybody's living longer, we all should work longer, that's just patently not true. Not everybody is living equally long. For instance, um, almost everybody has had since the 1940s, since World War II, there's been an increase in expected longevity, you know, at birth um, by all by race, by race and by education and by sex, um, and that's because we really eliminated a lot of child mortality. You know, so I look at in my book um, mortality after age 50 and after age 60. So after we save the babies and the teenagers stop, you know, stop wrecking their cars and and we save people from drug or overdoses, what happens to them, you know, at age, let's say, age 60? And what I found is that for um, black men and women, they have hardly any longevity um, improvements, and the most longevity improvements have, happened, um, have occurred for 
older white men who are in the top income groups. So longevity itself, especially if I compare it to kind of healthy longevity, has really accrued to people at the very top, people who are already well off and people who also have enough pension so that they can um, retire or choose to work if they want. So it's this, um, it took me a long time to write this part, but um, inequality isn't just between those who have a pension and those who don't, but it also has grown between those who have healthy expected lifespans, you know, versus those who um, mortality and morbidity has barely changed. Well, let's go ahead and take a break right here. And when we get back, we'll talk more about the state of the American economy and what that means if you're looking to retire soon. The number to call if you have a question or comment is 833-TPR-TALK. That's 833-877-8255. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. Support for TPR comes from the Lawton family of restaurants, Cappy's, Cappuccinos, Mama's Cafe, La Fonda on Main, and Jingu House, located in San Antonio. Their diverse menus and hours can be viewed at LawtonRestaurants.com. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. We're talking to Teresa Gilarducci. She's a labor economist and professor of uh, economics at the New School for Social Research. Her new book is Work, Retire, Repeat, The Uncertainty of Retirement in the New Economy. If you have a question or comment, you can call us at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. So, Teresa, what percent of Americans have retirement savings? Yeah, um, less than half. Less than half. Um, Everybody has Social Security, so that's good. And I just want to reassure your listeners that Social Security will certainly be there for them when they um, retire. Congress will have to put more money into the system to pay the promised benefits now, but Social Security will be there but for over half of Americans, um, there's nothing but Social Security. More Americans actually have mortgages, so they won't even own their house outright when they um, retire. And most people don't have anything significant in their in a 401k, or and they don't have a defined benefit or a regular pension plan. What about this idea that Americans have a three-legged stool that will support them yeah. when they're elderly? So that's income from Social Security, employer-based pensions, and personal assets. How true is that? Yeah, so that that seems nice, right? This like nice, sturdy stool that you sit on it and it doesn't wobble. Well, that works for the top um, third of Americans. You know, um, the top third of America—actually, like the top twenty percent now. Um, top 20% have equal amounts of private assets like their house, have Social Security, and have um, some, you know, some wealth in retirement accounts and above that at retirement accounts. So they're the top third, or top 20% now, are on a secure basis. Um, most of us, that's you know, the bottom 80%, have uh, something that's not a it looks like a pogo stick, you know, rather than a stool. <laughs> They only have Social Security, you know, to hop around on. And 
I mean, my next book, um, my next is really to look at how people are making it, you know, in retirement, to look at how they're depending upon younger generations on welfare, on food, on food stamps. That's really a story that hasn't been told, but my data has just revealed that that three-legged metaphor, that stool metaphor, is just really outdated and not relevant for most Americans. Well, I want to talk a little bit more or expand some more on something that you just mentioned, this idea of, um, you know, I mean, I personally just to be, get a little personal, I grew up, you know, kind of poor. And when you're a child, you have this idea in your head of, you know, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to become rich. I'm going to help my parents. But then you get yeah. older and, you know, that's not how it turns out for most of us. And so it's yeah. a confusing reality of trying to manage your own finances and also worrying about your own parents. And, yeah. you know, you start to think, well, what what options do they have? Yeah. Um, Kayla, I was going to ask you about your own situation. So first, um, I hope you are are saving for retirement. Um, so and I'm answering your question directly, like if you are in your 20s and 30s, no matter how much you're making, um, you know, please set aside for uh, an, an amount for retirement. And and everyone says that, and everybody also says, you know, to eat well and to do exercise. Because mm -hmm. um, I really want to, I really want to say that when I say that advice, and when you're young, you can save three to five percent for the next forty years, and you should be okay. That it also there's another side of me that says, Teresa, you're being patently ridiculous. <laughs> you know, for most people. They have so much competition for that dollar. You know, you have to pay back your student loans. You have to have something set aside for your car. And then rent is just getting ridiculous. So there's a part of me that says the wise, sensible thing, save mm -hmm. for retirement as early as possible. But the other side of me is, says, be real. It's a ridiculous thing to have to tell an American. And I guess that's my story is that we have uncertain retirement because we have a really broken retirement system. But back to your situation and how your situation kind of contrasts to the thing that you thought when you were in high school, um, it's likely that you will be taking care of your parents, you know, so that was nice. You know, I'll, I'll be secure and then I'll take care of my parents. But you probably, if you're like a lot of people, will be taking care of your parents and not be financially secure. You know, so because we have not taken care of our elderly, we are putting an undue built burden on the young. And so I am finding in my data that more and more women and even though they're a bit more invisible men are having to take care of older parents at the same time that they're taking care of younger children and trying to pay off their bills. You know, um, student debt is an issue, but there are other bills as well. So we are really squeezing the younger generation by not taking care of the older generation. Now, a lot of people take care of their parents in different ways. Um, they take care of their parents uh, by taking away their weekends or night, you know, in their nights, but keep on working. Others have to actually cut back on their work. But both things cut the health and wealth. Of, uh, of the older um, of the older child, you know, or a child who's also trying to, to take care of their own children. So what I'm trying to paint a picture of is that by not dealing with our retirement security problem, without raising 
more revenue into Social Security and without expanding coverage in retirement. We're just creating a generation and generation of more fragile individuals, and we're creating more and more inequality. Because embedded in that process, embedded in our broken retirement system, is an unequal is unequal sickness rates among our elderly and unequal longevity. So, so we had in America when I first started when I first started really looking at this in the 70s. And, I mean, I'm younger than that, but if you looked at the 70s and 80s, you saw that the period of old age was a time when inequality became um, shrank. Um, Social Security brought up the bottom. The rich really hadn't, you know, taken off. And longevity improvements was accruing to everybody. People were stopped being smoking, and the Social Security and Medicare came in. And so the the bottom was really brought up, um, and there was a lot of compression in old age. And now I'm seeing the period of old age being um, a period in which there's more distance um, between us. And it's just repeating itself generation after generation. Well, I want to go to a caller. We have Michael on the line. And Michael, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, good morning. Um, I, I was just wanted to say about Social Security. It's not there for everyone. My father only gets $3 from Social Security. Huh. My mother passed away, and he did not get her benefits. Uh, he will turn 93 this year. And uh, if he mm. takes care of himself, he can make it to 102 because his grandfather, his father died at 101. So, but we still help him out. And, um, he still has to cut yards and uh, just to survive. Uh, he had perfect. It was perfect when my mother was alive. But now that she's passed away, $3 is not enough for a, a person, you know, for a whole house. Um, All right, Michael, Michael, thank you so much uh, for calling in. And Teresa, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, Michael, that seems like a really unusual situation. I don't doubt you're, um, um, you're incorrect. Um, most people get Social Security. There are some people who were government employees. I know this is an issue in Texas, um, who um, had a government pension, you know, and so didn't get Social Security, and they're kind of caught uh, in between it. But it doesn't apply to a lot of other people. It sounds like your father could also be eligible for other programs um, in Social Security, like supplemental Social Security income. So I'm um, without probing no more or know the details, please, please see your Social Security Administration and see if um, this is correct. What I'm trying to say, Kayla, is that um, we have a system where Social Security covers almost everybody, but the average benefit is about $1,000. So $3 and $1,000 still adds up to not enough. Mm-hmm. And we had a system that you implied was built on this fantasy that people could fill in that what Social Security doesn't provide with private savings and with employer with employer pensions, but those two parts of the stool ha- you know, haven't um, come forward for most people. Well, how have pensions changed over the years? How has the relationship between employers mm-hmm. and how they view pensions changed? Yeah. So um, after World War II, we had a lot more unions. And we had a lot more unions in really key industries. So when the Teamsters and the uh, and the auto workers and the steel workers negotiated for pensions in their big companies, 
um, the Supreme Court let them. They were strong enough, and employers realized they needed to have skilled workers, you know, for uh, a, a good amount of time. That um, those practices spilled over to other parts of the country. Um, I used to teach at the University of Notre Dame there in South Bend. And once the auto companies in that town got a pension, then it spilled over um, to the insurance companies and the car dealers and the schools and you know and and most of the other employers. Um, so we had a system where not everybody was covered by a pension, but almost everybody in a household was covered by a pension, and employers were reluctant to do it, but they realized that workers would accept lower pay, you know, for more um, secure pensions because the workers could come together and they had the muscle to pick where their dollar of compensation was going to go. And what happened in the 1980s is that um, unions got weaker and the government really made them weaker. I don't know if many of um, people heard about the air traffic controller strike. It was a national strike during the Reagan administration. And the year that he fired all of them, which was a big red flag to all the other unions, was the same year in which he accepted a big cut in Social Security. So in the Reagan period, there was a, an attack on the institution that promoted pensions. There was an attack on Social Security because the retirement age got raised to 67, which was a cut in benefits for everybody who retired starting at age 62, and there was a push to um, create a 401k system, which meant that if employers wanted to, they could offer their employees a voluntary savings um, plan, which is a 401k. It's voluntary for the worker, and it's also voluntary for the employer to contribute. So in the 1980s, you saw all these three forces conspiring against pensions, and the whole fantasy was that employers would really find it um, convenient to offer this voluntary savings plan to all workers, but they didn't. Only half of workforce has an employer that even offers a plan, and, uh, and employers do not have to contribute to the plan like they did in the old-style plan. And you saw that in the recession of, of 2008, the Great Recession, and during the pandemic, employers decided, well, I'm not making enough profits, so I'm going to cut my contributions. And so we have a system that is uniquely American of non-universal coverage of, of employer pensions and employers having absolutely no obligation to put any penny into that system. Um, you asked me how employers are feeling um, of, about their employees. Some employers um, feel like they, they want to help their em, employee, employees. Some employers feel like they want to help their employer, their workers plan for their financial future. But when push comes to shove, employers say, hey, their financial future is not my business, and I'll cut contributions, I'll fire them, um, I will... Um, pay them a little extra but not put anything in um, in their pension. And if no union or any other force is going to make me do it, I won't do it. So that's how it's changed. The institutions have really changed the, um, that favored pensions. They've gotten weaker. Employers are pretty much acting the same. They want to maximize profits. 
Well, let's take another break right here, and when we get back, we can continue our conversation on this. The number to call if you have a question or comment is 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. I'm Tanya Mosley. And I'm Juana Summers. People collect all sorts of things. Sports memorabilia, stamps and antique lamps. If you've collected a few classic cars over the years and you also love public radio, consider this. Donate it to this station and it could mean hundreds of dollars in support. Donate online at tpr.careasy.org or call 877-486-1227. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla, in for David Martin Davies. We're talking to Teresa Gilarducci, who is the author of the book Work, Retire, Repeat, The Uncertainty of Retirement in the New Economy. If you have a question or comment for our guest today, you can call us at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. And you can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. So, Teresa, kind of continuing our conversation that we were having before the break, what is the state of unions in America and how do unions change workplaces? Yeah, um, great question, Kayla. Let me start with what workers want. Um, based um, Based on surveys and based on um, revealed preference, you know, what, what they're actually getting. Um, we researchers have con- concluded that workers want cash um, from their employers. Um, they also want some sense of security. And um, when they have the ability to make their preferences known, they also want a lot of their money, um, their compensation, to go towards pensions, to go, to go towards um, security of, of schedules, you know, and some time, some paid time off, and it goes um, towards um, health insurance. So when workers have a voice, and that's usually through collective bargaining and through unions, we have a very clear pattern of preferences. They want pensions um, as well as cash and some security. When workers don't have unions, um, then the employer just um, offers you know, a deal to each individual. And since it's cheaper for an employer to just offer cash, you know, rather than to arrange for a decent pension system, um, then they they don't bother. So there's something about the process of collective bargaining and unionization that um, gets workers' preferences expressed and well-known, and they basically want security. You also find that in voters when they're asked um, what they would rather have, a lower taxes or better Social Security. What would they rather have, more cash or more pensions? You know, that same pattern of wanting security comes up. So what happens when we don't have unions? We don't have workers get the institutions they need and want. And you asked me what the state of unions are in this country. And I have to say that despite the recent attention to some union organizing drives and attention to some recent union victories, the percentage of 
of private sector workers who are unionized is at an all-time low. It's less than 10%. And when you only have like 8 to 10% of your workforce unionized, unions basically don't have any muscle throughout the uh, throughout the economy. Remember I told you about South Bend, Indiana, where the auto company, uh, it was Bendix and the Uniroyal Tire Company, were unionized right after World War II. Well, that meant like the car dealership and the ice cream shops and the and the department stores were also unionized. It kind of spread throughout the community. Mm-hmm. Without enough muscle, you don't have the union preferences um, and the worker preferences really expressed. Uh, and that's too bad um, because if we don't actually have an institution that the unions had created, we are going to have a worse retirement income security problem. Well, I want to go to a caller that we have, and we have Roger on the line. And Roger, go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, yeah. So I was just calling uh, in reference to the gentleman who called about the 93-year-old uh, father. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, uh, people who are usually of that age uh, were a veteran at one point during their life. And so there is a there is a veteran's uh, pension plan for veterans who are um, – uh, below poverty lines, and so there is supplemental income and assisted living uh, benefits as well. So I'm just throwing that out there as a lifeline to those who are listening mm-hmm. um, as other potential benefits outside of Social Security. So, All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Roger. I appreciate that. Teresa, do you want to talk uh, more to that? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. And, um, and Roger, might, he sounds really knowledgeable, so he might agree. Um, we found out that many governors – um, and, and, and I'm talking to you in Texas, so I'll just talk about your um, your Texas um, governor. Um, really, have really ignored a big part of the federal government that could help their citizens, and that is that the um, governor's office with the state legislature could really help every single citizen who is eligible for energy assistance, um, housing assistance food stamps and supplemental income and Medicaid really sign up for those programs. Because if a governor, a state a state officials do not help its citizens sign up for federal programs, including veterans program, they're leaving money on the table. You know, there's nothing. And so we found out in New York where the governor is pretty proactive in trying to get people automatically signed up for everything that they're eligible for, that 40% of our people over age 60 Um, who were eligible for food stamps didn't get them. So we have proposed, and the governor has accepted, a a computerized system that once you get into one program like Medicaid, that might happen if you go to the hospital and the hospital signs you up for Medicaid, where you just automatically get signed up for all the other programs that you're eligible for. So if um, Michael's 93-year-old father had gone to the hospital and a social worker there realized he couldn't pay his hospital bills, um, he um, that social worker could have automatically signed him up for whatever veterans benefits or food stamps that he had um, available. This does require usually a family really being aggressive and knowledgeable, but it also requires the leaders of your states to really help organize the systems so that people um, can easily sign up for the benefits that they want. So there's a lot of money on the table that's not being collected by by older people. I want to go to another caller that we have, and we have Leslie on the line. And Leslie, go ahead. You're on the air. Yes, hi. Good afternoon. So I worked in the private sector for 30 years, 
And then I transferred into education here in Texas. And they enacted something called the windfall law, which mm -hmm. means that um, if I didn't meet the guidelines for uh, Social Security, that they chopped my Social Security benefits like by two-thirds. However, yeah. I feel like I, I worked hard and I earned those benefits. And just because I was in ed education, I earned those benefits, too, that there shouldn't be a competition. I earned everything. I should be getting my full Social Security benefits, but I'm not. All right, yeah, Leslie. Well, thank you so much for that call. Um, and Teresa, can you explain what's going on here? Yeah, um, Leslie, I am so sorry. You're um, you're part of a handful of people, and that's really true in Texas, where you have um, you're, you you worked really hard in two sectors, and most other people who work hard in two sectors and are eligible for two pension plans collect two pension plans. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not double dipping. There's nothing unfair. But because um, the Texas teachers, you know, had not been covered by Social Security for so long, um, you are you are um, in this um, in this weird situation. It's called windfall. It's improperly named. The only way that can be changed is by Congress. Um, with support from your from your governor and your state legislature, and so I don't have an answer for that. The answer is um, is political. With um, I'm glad you have some kind of a pension, um, but you should not have that cut in Social Security benefits. So there isn't much hope in Congress right now because Congress isn't doing anything. Um, but if they did, that would be one of the first things that I would I would patch up. I'm really sorry for your situation. So, Teresa, can you explain to us the calculation that is the policy work-life norm, which calculates how long people work, and how does that vary by country? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because I was shocked by what I found. Um, the, uh, in my book, I, I look to say, okay, how, how, does, how do the Americans stand up to the rest of the world? Is this working longer idea... Um, the idea is that you would patch up the the faulty system we have now um, with work, and is that are other countries kind of believing that that can happen? You know, are they going, or is it just an American phenomena? And I found that it's really just an American phenomena. It's true that there's pressure for people in all the other countries, famously in France, to work a little bit longer. But the magnitude of that pressure and the ages in which people are expected to work are far different in other countries. In, um, in France, they're pushing it from 60 to 62, maybe up to 63. Um, but the expectation in France is that you would actually retire um, in your 60s, and then you would live a nice, long life. You would get everything you need while you were retired, and you would have what I call a healthy retirement norm. And the norm in France, I'm looking at my graph here, is around 20 years. Um, so the work, the ex expectation is that you would spend um, 20 years um, relatively healthy in retirement. Um, in Denmark, that um, retirement norm is around 16 um, years. In Italy, it's um, like France. The United States is um, the norm is around 13 years. That the way that the um, average, um, the average Social Security 
the average Social Security recipient actually retires is um, around 64, 65. But the norm is that you can work all the way up to 70 um, because that's when the there are no longer increases to your Social Security benefit. So the norm now to Americans, hey, just work up until 70 and then you'll get this big reward with an increase in the Social Security benefit. And in fact, that reward is huge, Kayla. If you delay your retirement from 62 to 70, your benefit, your monthly benefit will be over 35% higher. Uh, and that makes a huge difference, you know, um, um, you know, $1,000 to an index figure of, you know, uh, $1,500. But well, we can talk more about that when we uh, when we get back from this break. And this is the source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. Today we're talking to Teresa Gilarducci. She is author of the book, Work, Retire, Repeat, The Uncertainty of Retirement in the New Economy. And I wanna go to a caller that we have on the line. And Margaret, if you go ahead, you're on the air. Thanks very much. My question for your guest today has to do with corporate protection of retirement benefits for employees. And I'm really curious because I know of the uh, acquisition of our merger between Hunt Corporation and Heinz Corporation. And this happened about five years ago. And what was curious is that the acquisitive portion of, of the corporation had access to money that had been set aside for employees' retirement benefit, and those funds got largely taken by the new company, leaving, you know, little money for the uh, employees who were anticipating or in retirement. And I'm just wondering, what's, what's the deal on this, and how significant of a problem is this going in and taking over corporate funds set aside for employee retirement benefits? Well, thank you so yeah. much for that call, Margaret. I appreciate it. And Teresa? Yeah, um, Margaret, um, I hope you weren't um, negatively affected. Um, this was a this was a problem um, before um, before the 70s um, that in, that money was set aside in a trust fund in one corporation for workers' pensions. Uh, and they would that company would go bankrupt and the money wouldn't be there, or um, another another um, creditors were paid, or um, another company would take over um, a company, loved the fact there was a pile of money sitting there, and take that. In the 70s, we passed a law that limited that. Um, we passed the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and both my mother and father were protected and hurt by, by this. They were protected because core benefits from a corporate plan, no matter who owns um, the company or whoever takes it over, are protected. Those are benefits over 65. But if the plan had offered special benefits for people under 65, like in the steel industry, you have a lot of people broken down by work and not able to, to make it to, um, to 65. So the unions and the steel companies had these special benefits 
that could begin at 55, 57, you know, 30 and out, those weren't protected. So, and I'll look into this. The Hunt Corporation took over Heinz. Heinz was a good company, cared about their workers to the extent that employers do, had a pension plan. It'd be interesting to see what part of those benefits were core and protected and what part of those benefits that weren't. But to answer Margaret's question directly, there are only some benefits are protected in the case of bankruptcy or um, uh, corporate takeover. Well, I want to read a comment that we got from a listener. She writes, her father was in the military and gets great benefits, but he recently got an hourly job to support income, and now he's getting less money from the federal government. How is that possible? Um, oh, it, uh, okay. Again, this should be um, reviewed by the local Social Security Administration. What might have happened is that um, her father was, that's right, her father was collecting Social Security, and then he got a, a job that earned uh, uh, a substantial amount. And so his Social Security benefits were cut because they met something called an earnings test. But what people don't understand is the situation isn't as bleak as it looks like. The Social Security Administration may be just cutting back the benefits for a while while he's working, and those benefits will come back to that um, to her father when he stops working. So he hasn't lost them. They've been suspended. But the details of that should be explained by the Social Security Administration. And I want to go to another caller. We have J.D. on the line. And J.D., go ahead. You're on the air. Hello. Yes, you mentioned that um, when you uh, retire at age 70, your benefits are much better than if you do at 64 and 64, 65 years old. Well, in the meantime... How long are you going to live after age 70? You know, nobody knows. You may live 20, 30 years. You might die in two years. Yeah. So you won't earn as yeah. much. If you, if you start at 64, 65 and getting like $1,000 a month, that's $72,000 you get in five or six years. Mm-hmm. Then if yeah. you wait till you're 70, you lose out on those 72000 Yeah. So, yeah, J.D., um, thanks for your question. One of the most difficult things to do, a Nobel Prize winner called planning for retirement, the hard, the most difficult and nastiest um, calculations you have to make. And J.D. just explained how nasty it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, Social Security Administration has set it up so that people have to make an impossible decision. You first, in order to decide when to collect Social Security, you have to decide when you're going to die and you have to decide uh, when your spouse is going to die um, in order to make kind of the optimal or maximum um, 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 decision. And, of course, that's impossible. So experts have tried to make it easier for people to get the best deal possible. And we know, um, based on surveys and, and data over time, that people – tend to live longer than they think they're going to live. We have questions of 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds asking them their best guess about when they're going to die, and then we see when they actually die, and most people think they're going to die four to five years earlier than they are. It's only people that might have a handful of diseases who really have a good probability of, of guessing right. 
So the advice to uh, most experts is to wait as long as you can because the American system gives you a huge rate of return on waiting. The reality is, is not only do people think they're going to die earlier, a lot of people, even if they think they're going to live to 100, can't wait to collect Social Security because they don't have a good job or they don't have any job at all. And so we're forcing people to take their benefits a lot earlier than they should. And the people who can wait until 70 and get their 8% return every year, you know, past their normal retirement age, just get a really good deal from the federal government. It's a big, wet kiss, you know, to um, the most wealthy among us. So there's something inherently unfair um, by having people having to decide when they're going to die. And it's kind of a trick because human nature is risk averse and they really want the money now rather than later. Uh, and so it's not a great deal. It's a really, for most people, it's a great deal for the people who have really good financial advice, um, who have good health and who have enough money that they can wait. So we have about four minutes here till the end of the program, but I want to cover two things really quickly. The first is, you know, I have a question. How have laws against age discrimination also encouraged more elderly work in turn? Yeah. Um, Great question, Kayla, because you said at the top of this program, how has the pandemic affected people? So there are age discrimination rules, and they are sometimes effective and sometimes not. During the pandemic and during the Trump administration, I'm not being political here, but Trump was not, that administration did not enforce labor fairness and labor laws. It was kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity for employers to push out older workers, who we know from surveys, um, employers um, would rather not have older workers. Older workers are paid a little bit more, and there's um, ignorance about how productive older workers are. So a lot of older workers were pushed out of the pandemic. How have um, age discrimination laws, looking at the good side of it, really prevented employers from firing the older workers when they wanted to, or or maybe have a better attitude toward older workers? Um, It's been helpful a little bit, but what's been most helpful is that older workers are more educated, especially especially women. And there are more demand for, um, for workers in healthcare and education where women have been concentrated. And so we see um, more and more employers, especially when they're in a tight spot, um, more likely to hire kind of marginal workers of which older workers are some. But to answer your question, age discrimination laws have had a little effect, but not as big as we would hope. And finally, can you just talk to us about, you know, you write in your book about the Great New Deal, and can you talk to us about these solutions that we need to be implementing and the changes that we need to be making to make retirement an option for everyone? Yeah, thank you, Kayla. Exactly right. I wrote the book. I've lived my life. I do all my research to make a dignified retirement available for everybody who wants it. And what we need is a gray Um, New Deal. We need a New Deal that really shores up dignified retirement for everybody. We need to put more money into Social Security. Social Security will not be able to pay full benefits in 10 years. We have to start putting money, more money now into Social Security. Um, We also um, have to expand the pension system. Um, Everybody starting out, you, Kayla, sound young, 
um, need to meet their dreams, that you can retire with dignity and even help out your kids and, and, um, and, your, and your parents. But you can only do that if you have access to a retirement system every minute that you work. And so there's a bill in Congress that would expand um, pensions to everybody, to the half of the workforce that, doesn't ha- that don't have it. And that's over like 70 million people. So there's a watch for this bill in Congress. It's supported by a Democrat and Democrats and Republicans. Um, we also really have to help advise people about when to collect their Social Security. For most people, it pays to wait. Um, Michael, um, I mean, it was JD's calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, may work for him, but probably it doesn't. So we need a lot more attention um, for older people because that helps everybody. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for coming on our program today. It was so great having you on. Thank you, Kayla. You were fantastic. Thank you. Teresa Gillarducci is a labor economist and professor of economics at the New School for Social Research. Her new book is Work, Retire, Repeat, The Uncertainty of Retirement in the New Economy. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation.